John chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. The Word of God says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And together, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And let's pray. Lord, powerful passage of Scripture, one of the best known in all the Bible throughout the world. And yet today we ask you to make these words fresh and new in our hearts. Forgive us who are saved for um, just getting used to being saved. Sometimes it's easy for us to lose the glory of it, to miss the beauty of it, the awe of it. I pray today for the saint that you would help us to be excited all over again about our salvation. And Lord, for the sinner, if there's one here today that's not sure they're saved, or listening to my voice, that they would be convicted of their sin, of righteousness and judgment, of their need of the Savior, of coming judgment, that we'll stand before God one day. And it's only in the person of Christ that they can find deliverance and salvation. So I pray you'd make the message clear, give me the words to say, give us ears to hear, power as I speak, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As I said, this is one of the best-known passages in all of Scripture. John chapter 3.16 has been preached perhaps more than any other verse in the Bible over the years, and with good reason. It is the single best verse about how to go to heaven in the Bible. And it tells us of God's love, uh, shows us Christ's sacrifice, it declares God's terms, it shows men their sin, explains God's gift of life that's available. What a powerful and beautiful verse. I remember years ago of a prominent preacher had a large church and he was out of town uh, and he had a, an evangelist in for two weeks, a two-week revival. The preacher had been out of town preaching and had come back in and he had heard that all week, every night, that the guest preacher had preached on John 3.16. Every night he preached on John 3.16. And this famous preacher was explaining his thoughts as he talked about this later. He said he was a little bit frustrated with himself. You know, we got a big, long Bible. There's thousands of verses you could choose from, and to preach from the same verse every night just seemed a little bit lazy, just seemed... Uh, like he was phoning it in, calling it in. And that night, the preacher who was his large church, he snuck in the back and got there earlier than he'd expected, and he sat in the back. And once again, the old evangelist turned to John 3.16 and preached from the same verse again. 
And that old pastor said he sat back there with tears rolling down his face. The word of God was so clear and powerful. The gospel was so beautiful. He said, I wished I could have gotten saved all over again. And then he was pleased that the evangelist had preached on the same verse every night. And he said, I could listen to this every night. Uh, you know, sometimes we just get too used to our salvation. Yeah, I'm saved. Yeah, you know for sure you're going to heaven? Yeah, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. What's, on, what's, what's for dinner? Yeah, I know for sure I'm going to heaven. Uh, what, what sports are on this afternoon? Uh, oh, my friend, if you can say that you know for sure you're going to heaven, do you understand that most of the 7 billion plus people in the world can't say that? What a gift of God. Not just to, to go to heaven, to have salvation available, but to make it a free gift and available to everyone. And so, uh, boy, let's, let's be enthralled once again with John 3.16 and the salvation that is so richly given to those who will believe. Now today we'll look at John 3.16, but I want to focus primarily on the verses that precede John 3.16 and then tie it into that great verse. You know the story in John chapter 3, there was a man named Nicodemus that came to see Jesus under the cover of darkness. He was a well-known man. If he had showed up during the day, people would have recognized him and perhaps uh, he would have taken a lot of flack for seeing Jesus and asking him questions. You see, this man Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was one of the strict religious sect that was supposed to know more about Judaism than any other group of people in Israel. He lived a very sanctified, a holy, a set-apart life. He did everything he could to please Jehovah God and went to great lengths in learning and in how to live. Nicodemus's peers, the other Pharisees, had rejected Jesus as a charlatan, a faker, a false prophet. But Nicodemus had questions burning in his heart. Nicodemus would think about this man, I think, when no one was around and perhaps laying on his bed at night, those moments as you drift off to sleep and your mind kind of wonders. He, he kept being arrested by this thought, who is this man? How could this man do all the things he was doing? How could he do such miracles? Why did this man Jesus speak about God as if he knew him? As if he'd seen him? He spoke with such authority as a young man. Nicodemus could not get away from the words of Christ in his heart. He had to see him. Surely someone with such power, wisdom, and authority was sent from God, Nicodemus thought. Yet Jesus challenged so much of what Nicodemus had been taught to believe. You see, Nicodemus spent his whole life studying the Old Testament. Oftentimes Pharisees would begin studying the Bible at, at, at five years of age, and they were prepped from their youth. They had huge portions of Scripture memorized, and they had volumes of, of uh, commentaries that they would study as if their life depended on it. His entire existence was wrapped up in his religion. But the words of Jesus moved his heart like no one ever had. 
Nicodemus had to speak to this man called Jesus of Nazareth. But he didn't want to lose his position. He didn't want to lose favor with the people. He didn't want to lose his place on the council. This was his whole life. But he had to see Jesus. He had to speak to him himself. So finally, Nicodemus snuck away one night and found Jesus alone. Now talk about a divine appointment. You look at all the times in the scriptures, and you very rarely find Jesus alone unless he was praying. He would often go alone to pray, but that was usually very early in the morning or very late at night. Jesus Christ lived his life ministering to the people, often thronged with those who were following him around, begging him, for miracles. I don't know how many days it took Nicodemus to work this out. Perhaps he watched and waited for days, perhaps weeks, or maybe God just worked it out as a divine appointment. But somehow Nicodemus snuck away, found Jesus alone, and had a private conversation with him. After he greets Jesus cordially, Our Lord spoke words that shook Nicodemus to the core. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus was confused. How how can I be born again? How can I be born another time? And you see in verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? And can he enter into the, the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus explained to Nicodemus that he wasn't speaking of a second physical birth. He was speaking of a spiritual birth. Nicodemus had been born physically, but just like he had been born physically, he needed to be born spiritually if he had any hope of going to heaven. And Jesus doubled down in verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Christ lovingly taught this religious but lost man about his need of a miraculous salvation. A new spiritual birth accomplished by the Spirit of God. Now wait a minute. Nicodemus believed in the God of the Bible. He was a religious man. But he was so focused on how to live that he didn't know how to die. And I want you to look at me. Religion will not take you to heaven. Religion will not take you to heaven. We were out at the store yesterday, and uh, my daughter passing out tracts, and she tried to pass a tract to a lady, and the lady said, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic. As if that's your get into heaven free pass, you know. It's, no, I got my card here. Where is it? Oh, no, no, I'm a Catholic. It's almost set. Uh, I know a lot of people who are Catholics that are very sincere about their religion, but religion is not enough to get you to heaven. You can throw in whatever you want, Mormon, Methodist, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Universalist, Wiccan, Spiritualist. There's all types of religions, but it's not religion that saves the soul. When you die, God's not going to say, what religion were you? Oh, yeah, come on in. I didn't know you were one of those. Let me say this. You won't go to heaven because you call yourself a Baptist. To 
Sitting in this church isn't going to get you to heaven. Slapping some label on you isn't going to get you to heaven. It's the new birth, the miraculous transformation of the soul that saves the sinner. Forgiveness of sin through the paid penalty. Nicodemus was so focused on how to live that he didn't know how to die. As a Pharisee, he studied the multitude of books written by Jewish scholars over thousands of years. Over time, the meaning of Scripture was lost in a sea of men's surmising and conjectures. Let me tell you this morning, you come to Curtis Corner Baptist Church, I'm not just going to tell you what Paul Chapman thinks. We're not going to bring out some book written by some man and tell you what they think. We bring the book of God, the only book God ever wrote, the Holy Bible, King James Version, that that is inspired and preserved and protected and powerful. This tells us everything God wants us to know about life and godliness. Not everything you want to know, but everything you need to know is found right here in this book. And that's the promise. When you walk through those doors, we're going to look at verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. I'm going to show you what God said. Because that's all that matters. But the Pharisees were so caught up in the sayings of man. Well, Rabbi Ben whatever says this and and Rabbi so and so says this. And no, what does God say? And Jesus brought Nicodemus back to the eternal truth about salvation. No one is saved by being good enough. Because if you could earn your way to heaven, surely Nicodemus was close. But you can't earn your way to heaven. We're saved by mercy and grace through the Messiah or the Savior. You see, in the Old Testament, they believed in a Messiah who was yet to come. In the New Testament, we look back to the Messiah or the Savior who's already been here. And his name is Jesus Christ. They looked forward and didn't know his name, but they had to believe in him in order to be saved. We look back knowing that not only did he come, we know his name. You say, how do you know that? How do you know they were saved by faith in the Old Testament? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 4. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. You see, people even before the law was given were saved by faith. You don't get to heaven by keeping the law. You get to heaven by trusting God and believing in his Christ. But you can understand with Nehemiah's background, Jesus Christ was challenging everything Nehemiah thought to be true. Nicodemus thought to be true, Uh, and he was still confused. His mind was blown. Look at verse 9, John chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Boy, his mind was blowing up. And Jesus rebuked him in verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? You're a teacher? You're a teacher teaching others, and you don't know these simple, basic truths? And how many people are like that? How many people call themselves priest or rabbi or preacher or this or that, and they don't know the basic truths that they're supposed to know? All of us should be students of God's Word, amen? 
Jesus rebukes him and challenges him to think wisely. Our Lord explained that if you don't believe me about the basic things, how could you believe me if I told you the real heavenly truths? Verse 11, verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know. See, Jesus says, I know what I'm talking about, and testify that we have seen. He said, I not only know it, I've seen it, and ye receive not our witness. That's an eyewitness. I'm giving, Jesus Christ said, I'm giving you an eyewitness testimony. You want to see the kingdom of God, but you can't unless you're born again. I've seen it. Jesus begins explaining the authority he had to teach Nicodemus these things. Verse 12, and if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13, and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Here we see Jesus declaring his authority. I'm telling you what I know to be true. Nobody's gone up to heaven to see God, but God sent one down to testify of these things, and that's the Son of Man. Here Jesus is basically saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been looking for. You can imagine Nehemiah's head just... Nicodemus, thank you. (laughs) Nehemiah would have too if he had been there. Uh, Nicodemus' head just... His mind was blown. And, you know, we read the words, but put yourself in Nicodemus's place. Imagine the authority that Christ spoke with. Imagine how the perfect words of the living God pierced to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit with an authority and a love and a power that Nicodemus had never experienced in his life. But then Jesus, trying to help this confused teacher who'd spent his life studying the Old Testament, Jesus said, let me remind you of an Old Testament story that will explain to you what I'm talking about. And look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, verse 14 reminded Nicodemus of the story of the brazen serpent. And let's take a moment, we'll come back to John chapter 3, but let's take a moment and look over at Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. Remember, the Old Testament illustrates what the New Testament illuminates. There's all all kinds of types and shadows in the Old Testament that are explained black and white in the New Testament. And here we find a fascinating story in the Old Testament that directly pictures salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's look at Numbers chapter 21. And verse 1, And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. 
And the Lord hearkened unto the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and he called the name of the place Hormah. And see, the Jews had been delivered from Israel after 430 years of bondage, of slavery. They cried out for generations for God to deliver them. God finally did. Moses is leading them through the wilderness. God is supernaturally protecting them and providing for them. But the, the Israelites here had a problem. They were complainers. They were doubters. And they always had something to complain about. They, they always had something to whine about. And often they would blame God and they would blame Moses. They would just blame everybody. And by the way, don't, don't, be a, don't play the blame game in your life. You know, some people just live looking for somebody to blame for their problems. You'll never become a victor as long as you play the victim. Stop playing the victim. So you had a bad run of it. You had a bad go. Somebody did you wrong. Welcome to the club. It's called humanity. But as long as you play the victim, you can never be the victor. Look to God in faith rather than blame everybody as an excuse for why you continue to fail. And here the Israelites were caught in that circle of victimhood. Oh, it's a problem. Oh, God did us wrong. Oh, you should have just left us back in there. Oh, I missed the leeks and the onions and the food was so good. Well, here's some manna, angels' food sent down from heaven. We don't want manna. We want fried chicken from KFC and uh, extra crispy with a side of mashed potatoes. Hallelujah. I think that was the Lord right there. Uh, uh, maybe we all ought to make a run to KFC. And uh, now that they... This is how crazy they were. Oh, that. Oh, I miss that. I miss my old life of slavery. And God would look down from heaven and be like, you, you prayed and begged me for hundreds of years to deliver you. And all you do is complain in your deliverance. Here we see that they were, uh, some of them were captured. They prayed to God. God just delivered them. They utterly destroyed their enemies. You would think that would be a time of rejoicing. But you know, some people can't rejoice even when things are going well. And look at verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Hey, it was hot. This was hard going. It was a difficult journey. But look at verse 5. And the people spake against who? God. Hey, you're always on shaky ground when you start blaming God. Don't blame God. God's the best friend you've got. He's your only hope of deliverance in any situation. Oh, and then look, who else did they blame? Moses. You see, when people start blaming God, they also have to blame the people that God put in their lives to guide them. So children blame the parents. You know, there's no parent in this room that's perfect, and none of us in this room had perfect parents. Some of, you, some of us had better parents than others but the truth is your life is not determined by who your parents were but how you respond to your own life some people blame the pastor well my life would have been good but that pastor that 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 moses well my boss well the politicians you know there's always there's always somebody no we're going to look to god in spite of all that but here they decided to blame god and they decided to blame 
Moses. And then look what they said in verse 5. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? You just brought us out here to kill us. For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. They weren't happy with God's provision. They weren't happy with God's deliverance. And we got to be careful that, you know, when life gets a little tough, that's not the time to, to turn and bail on God. It's time to run to God. When your marriage gets tough, that's not the time to bail on your marriage. Life gets tough, that's not the time to commit suicide. Oh, we run to God. We don't push God away and blame Him. We run to Him. But see, what the Israelites forgot is that this was a great sin. Murmuring against God, blaspheming God, blaming God, despising God's salvation, despising God's protection, despising God's provision. What a sinful place to be in. So God sent them these fiery serpents. Now, fiery serpents, the word fiery just means venomous or poisonous. These were poisonous serpents. You imagine they're in the desert. I know in our country, in the desert, we'd be talking about rattlesnakes. Uh, There's not fun. Anybody ever been bit by a rattlesnake? Anybody want to be bit by a rattlesnake? Anybody want to? No, okay. Because I got one in the back. No, I don't have you ever seen those shows on like the those documentaries or something? They're like milking these these snakes to get so they can make the anti venom, and they take these snakes and the, you know the big fangs come out, and then they put their fangs in that little uh, test tube, and, and you just see that milky venom come out. It's some nasty stuff. There's a viper in in Asia that has two inch fangs. Long enough where they can bite through their lower jaw and still get you, even if you try to hold them like a normal snake. There are some snakes that are so venomous that the snake of one, the, the poison of one snake can kill 20 to 30 grown men. Let me tell you, these poisonous snakes, you don't want to mess with them. If you see one, just go the other way. I was reading a story about a man who saw a poisonous snake in his yard. He cut the snake's head off, but then he forgot that snakes can still bite you after you cut their head off hours later. And he got bit and actually lost functionality in part of his arm because the venom did such nerve damage. So I want you to put yourself in this story. Ah, yeah, fiery serpents, whatever. This is a big deal. All of a sudden, there's poisonous snakes everywhere. It's like the ground is crawling with them. They just see the ground moving with this wave of snakes coming at you. And you imagine people getting up on top of things and standing on chairs and tables and trying to climb on tops of houses and doing anything they can to get away from these snakes. And in this story, we see a perfect picture of the gospel. And let me give it to you. Number one, we see sin recognized. You see, God sent the venomous serpents as a physical representation of the people's sin. Look at verse 6, Numbers 21, verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And much people of Israel, what? 
died. So apparently this was a fast-acting fast acting poison. Now, the, the serpents were a physical representation of the people's sin. You know, sin is real, but sometimes we can't always see it. Sometimes we don't even recognize it. You know, someone could have a sinful heart, but you can't necessarily see it on the outside. Sometimes you can see people acting sinfully, but you say, oh, no, I, th- I think that's okay. I don't think that's a sin. We live in a world today where people are doing all kinds of sinful things, and they don't even blush anymore because they're like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, God says it's wrong. I don't, I don't believe that. There's nothing wrong with that. So you can't always see sin, and you may not always recognize it. Nevertheless, sin is present, and it is deadly. Sin kills everything it touches. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Now, here's the truth. The people in Israel were infected with sin. They were sinners, and they had just, got, they had just finished blaspheming God, cursing Moses, thinking that God was trying to hurt them and kill them, despising everything good that God was doing for them. Did you know that you and I are no less sinners? The Bible says in Romans 3.10, As it is written, there is none righteous or perfect, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You're infected with sin. You may not feel it right now. You may not recognize it. Maybe you don't feel its effects yet. But my friend, sin is real. And we have to recognize our sin in order to desire salvation. You know, if you don't think you're in trouble, why would you want to be delivered? If you think you're healthy, why would you go see a doctor? And sin must be recognized. And so God sent these Venomous serpents as a physical representation of their sin. No longer could they hide from their own sin. Number two, we see the gospel here. We see death reckoned. Not only sin recognized, but death reckoned. Death had come. The day of reckoning had come. The Bible says in verse 6, And much people of Israel died. The people bitten by these fiery serpents died. Once bitten, death was inevitable. No human medicine could save them. There was no hospital. There was no treatment that could save them. If you got bit, you were a dead man. You were a dead woman. And see, isn't this a perfect picture of sin? Because once you're infected by sin, there is no natural remedy. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of goodness you can do. There's nobody in this world that can help you. There's nowhere to run. You are a dead man walking. And I tell you this morning that if you're here or you're listening and you're not saved, it is a matter of time until you die. Not just physically, but spiritually. You're a dead man walking. You're a dead woman walking. And it's only a matter of time until you succumb to that eternal poison that has corrupted your soul and will take you straight to hell. No amount of kind words, great works, spiritual activities, or good intentions can remove the venom of sin. Death is certain. We see sin recognized. We see death reckoned. Then number three, we see repentance realized. Look at Numbers 21 and verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have what? Sinned. Sinned. 
We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. You see here, repentance is realized. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Repentance unto salvation is recognizing your sin, changing your mind about your sin, changing your mind about the Savior, and seeking salvation in Jesus Christ. At first, the people thought that God was wrong, and Moses led them wrong. They spoke against God and Moses. In their minds, this blasphemy was justified. Oh, but they had to change their minds. No, we weren't right. We sinned. And see, this is the path to salvation for everyone. Before you can get saved, you have to acknowledge you're a sinner. That's why in the gospel plan, when we give people the the gospel plan, we spend some time showing them that according to the word of God, they're a sinner, not because we're trying to beat them down, not because we're trying to discourage them, but because they need to know they're in danger so that they'll want deliverance. And that that repentance unto salvation is that change of mind where you're like, oh my, I am a sinner. And that means I I am going to go to hell. And and Jesus is the Savior. And then they sought salvation. They asked Moses to pray for them that God would deliver them. Then next, and this one's exciting to me, I believe we see the cross recommended. Look at verse 8. The cross recommended. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that when everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. So consider this. The Lord instructed Moses to fashion an image of a fiery serpent made of brass. And this brazen serpent was placed upon a pole so the pole could be hoisted up above the people so you could look at the the brazen serpent from a distance. But you know, as you think about this, if you were to take a vertical pole and put on top of it a horizontal brazen serpent, It looks an awful lot like a Roman cross, doesn't it? And here I believe we have an Old Testament foreshadowing that one of these days Jesus would be lifted up. Isn't that what he told Nicodemus? As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I believe back then we see this cross recommended where he lifts up this servant in the form of a a Roman cross and you would look to the serpent to be saved, to be healed. And this remarkable event foreshadowed the Messiah that would come over 1,400 years later. I love the Bible. I love God, folks. You know, God had this thing all figured out long before you and I came along. And when you realize that 1,400 years before God sets up this image and gives this story so that 1,400 years later, His Son could use it to win one man to Christ. 
That's pretty cool. And we worry about what's going to happen today. We worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. What's North Korea going to do? I don't know. What's Iran going to do? I have no idea. Who's going to win the election? I don't know. But I know in heaven they're not holding an election. God's position is secure. And we need to trust him anyway. That doesn't mean you're not aware. It doesn't mean that you act foolishly. I think we ought to do everything we can to promote righteousness and godliness. Use wisdom to vote for wise people. You know, America's in such a mess because Americans keep choosing fools to represent them in the government. And I don't use that word lightly. You look at a lot of these positions, they are utterly foolish. But thank God he's still on the throne. It's easy to see why Jesus used this story to teach Nicodemus how to be saved. Not only do we see the cross recommended, but we see faith revealed. Look back at this verse. It says in the Lord, verse 8, And the Lord shall make, the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall what? Live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he what? He lived. You know, it's just amazing. If you do what God says, things tend to work out all right. Just do what God says. I don't understand it. Just do what God says. Think about this. How did poison and dying people receive healing? It wasn't through religious activity. It wasn't through sacrificial giving. Moses didn't say, say, uh, 10 Hail Marys and 20 Lord's Prayers and do this and do that and put this much money in the offering and go to church this many times and promise God you're going to do this and go get baptized and go, go here and take a trip to Mecca. I mean, there was, there was none of that. It wasn't modern medicine. They were healed by looking at the statue of a serpent. A simple look of faith was enough to save the sinner. And did you know a simple look of faith is enough to save the sinner today? But it takes faith to look. It took faith to believe that looking at a brass snake on a stick would heal you. I wonder how many people died needlessly in their stubbornness because they refused to look at the brazen serpent. I wonder how many men told their wives, everybody knows you can't look at a statue and be healed. I wonder how many mamas told their children, don't get bit by one of those snakes because you know there's no hope and don't, don't you trust that Moses. Don't, don't you think that that, 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 that that brazen snake's going to heal you. Everybody knows that you can't get healed from Poisoned by looking at something. Oh, but you can if that's what God said. Never forget that God made salvation simple. And before, before you get too upset about that, well, you guys just believe in easy believism. Well, what do you believe in? Hard believism? You make it hard to get saved? 
If your children were lost in the woods, would you make it difficult for them to find their way home? The truth is that you couldn't save yourself no matter how hard you tried. But never believe that salvation was easy. Because just because salvation is simple doesn't mean that it's easy. It wasn't easy for God who gave His only begotten Son. It wasn't easy for Jesus who left the glories of heaven, fashioned Himself as a man, lived in subjection to His own creation, walked among the dust of this world only to die a sinner's death on a rugged cross. It wasn't easy for the preachers who've preached that over the years, trying to take the gospel far and wide. Famine, pestilence, drought, imprisonment, torture, persecution, death. How dare you say, well, you just make salvation too easy. Easy. But don't you dare corrupt the simplicity that's in salvation. Because salvation may not be easy, but it certainly is simple. A simple look of faith. Let me show you a verse, Isaiah chapter 45. God did all the work, but you must have the humility and the faith to believe his plan. And once again, we see the gospel foreshadowed in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22. Let's read it together. If you're there, say amen. amen. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, the word of God says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Isn't that beautiful? Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. There's so much doctrine in that one verse. And who, who, who's telling us that? Who has the authority to, to say it's so simple to be saved? Oh, for I am God. And there is none else. God reminding people, you don't make the rules. I do. And just like Jesus telling Nicodemus, you've never been to heaven. You've never seen. But I have been there. I have seen. And you'll never see the kingdom of heaven except you be born again. By the way, Nicodemus, remember that story in the Old Testament about the brazen serpent? That was telling you about me. Let's look back at John chapter 3. The Lord summed up this conversation with Nicodemus about salvation with some of the clearest verses on salvation you find in the whole Bible. Let's read them now with a new understanding. You follow along as I read John chapter 3, verse 14. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You notice that simple faith in there? Whosoever believeth, you believe in Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross to pay for your sins, that He was buried and He rose again. Then look at verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be what? Saved. Saved. Now wait a minute. Look at me. Jesus came the first time to save the world. He's coming the second time to condemn the world. That's when you see Jesus Christ coming back in the book of Revelation, bringing the wrath of God with him. He's no longer the the lamb. Now he's the lion. But see, Jesus teaching this Pharisee some deep theology. I didn't come this time to condemn you. I came this time to save you. Isn't that sweet? You see the heart of Christ here? Verse 18, I love this verse. He that believeth on him is not condemned. The word condemned means reserved for destruction. If you believe, you're not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. You say, what do I have to do to be lost? Nothing. You're already lost. What sin do I have to do to go to hell? Nothing. You're already going there. Why? What have I done that's so terrible? Read the rest of the verse. It says, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Since Christ came, there's one sin that's the unpardonable sin. And that is rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's why Jesus explained and he connected this unpardonable sin with the unpardonable sin of the Holy Spirit. What was that? The Holy Spirit was working so that people would believe Jesus is the Savior. But people looked at the work of the Holy Spirit and said, that's not the work of God, that's the work of the devil. And Jesus said, if you speak against the Holy Spirit in that way, you're committing the unpardonable sin. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to condemn you, show you your need of Christ, and then ultimately have a part in salvation, giving you the new birth. If you reject the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're rejecting the Savior He's pointing you to. That's the unpardonable sin. And then look at the last verse here, verse 19. And this is the condemnation. This is what condemns the world. Jesus said, I'm not condemning the world. This is what's condemning the world. That light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. Who's the light? Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He said, lights come. But men would rather have darkness. John chapter 1, Jesus said he came into his own. The the word says he came into his own, his own received him not. Don't be one of the foolish people that reject Jesus. Don't be one of those who are so stubborn and so sinful that you refuse to look at the brazen serpent. Just look and live, my friend. Look and live. Jesus is ready to save. God sent His Son. Jesus has paid the price. 
Will you humble yourself? Recognize that you're a sinner. Recognize he's the Savior. And trust him today. That is the only cure for sin in the whole universe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth. Oh, how we love your word. We love uh, its beauty. And Lord, we love how pointed it is. And even we appreciate how it corrects us. Teaches us what's right. Lord, I pray if there's anyone under the sound of my voice today, that today would be the day they would trust Christ. Not one more day without Christ. Not one more day living in sin. Not one more day condemned. But today would be the day they would trust Christ. Salvation is available. It's free. Help us to look and live. Then, Lord, help those who are saved to revel in their salvation. What a privilege. What a gift to know for sure we're saved. Help us to never take it for granted. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We'll have just a moment of invitation and reflection. I wonder if you're here this morning and you know for sure you're saved. You say, preacher, I, I know I'm saved. There's been a time in my life I've trusted Christ. Would you rejoice? I mean, just thank God right there in your seat for a minute. Just thank God. Maybe you're here today and you say, boy, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. I'm not, not sure I'm saved, but I'd like to. I'm concerned about it. Let us take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. Not man's word, not joining a church, not getting baptized, but what God says about how you can look to Christ and live. And then, my dear friend, our, our community, our neighbors, our family, they're all poisoned with sin's corruption. Are we doing enough trying to reach them? May God inspire us to get the gospel to the lost. As a piano